And so, Lord Jesus, we look to you and we pray that you would help us now to see you, to see your hands and your feet, to see those beautiful scars. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you do tell a story. Your body tells a story. And we thank you that you are the plot to the story. You are the heart of God from the bosom of the Father. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus. We ask that you would, we, would, we would see you. We pray that you would cause us to preach. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm so glad that uh, you're here this morning and glad that people watch on, online. So that's pretty, that's pretty cool. We've been preaching a little mini-series on how to read your Bible. And uh, last week we started uh, with this verse from Hebrews chapter 4 that Kathleen read, and we're continuing this week, and we'll do that uh, next week. Last week we preached that the Bible is like a love letter, but it's more than a love letter. It's a stack of love letters which over time uh, tell a story, uh, comprise a story. One morning during the Luftwaffe bombings of World War II, Leslie Weatherhead, a British preacher, was walking through the streets in the morning when he spied a little boy sitting in the rubble of some blown-up building. He went up to the little boy. His clothes were tattered. There was soot all over his face, save for uh, the pink that was exposed by the trail of tears on his cheek. He bent down and he asked the little boy, son, where are your parents? They're all dead, sir. He inquired about the boy's relatives. They're all dead, sir. Then he asked the little boy, son, where's your home? The little boy pointed down the street to a pile of blown up rubble. And then Weatherhead said, son, who are you? The little boy replied, I ain't nobody, nothing. Sadly, in a way, the little boy was right, wasn't he? In a way, because all of his stories had been destroyed. Mommy, daddy, favorite toys, little stories at bedtime, promises of vacation, little family rituals, all erased. He had no past, it seemed. He did not have the seeds that would bear his future. He had no story. He was orphaned. We have an entire society of orphans because we've lost our story. Modernism, the thinking of the 20th century, modernism has, has taught us that stories well, are just myth. And the facts are the truth. Facts like carbon, oxygen, nitrogen. Well, stories are made of facts, but facts without a story have no meaning. So we modern people, we have trillions of facts, don't we? Just on your cell phone, at your fingertips, you have uh, trillions of facts, but we don't know what any of them mean. Modernism teaches that matter 
is all that matter, matters. Matter is all that matters. So there is no plot, no story, other than the stories that we make up. So modern parents scold their children like this. Stop telling a story. Is that a story? As if a story is a lie. Modern people have come to believe that a story is a lie. Michael Mead points out that the word story comes from the concept storehouse. A story is a store or a storehouse. So things are stored in a storehouse. People are stored in a story. So if stories are lies, maybe there are no people. Maybe there are no persons, just carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, helium. Children love stories. So when my children were little, they used to always say, when they were going to bed, Dad, Dad, tell me the story. Tell me about when I was born. And so I'd say, well, Coleman, the time of your birth was 4.27 a.m., November 2nd, 1994. You were born at Littleton Adventist Hospital, 7700 South Broadway, Littleton, Colorado, 80122, phone number 303-730-8900. Coleman, you can call this number to verify these facts. If I would have said that to four-year-old Coleman, he would have looked at me like an orphan sitting on a pile of rubble of some old bombed-out building. He doesn't want facts. He wants the story because the story gives meaning to all of his facts. Coleman, November 2nd is your mommy's birthday. And now it's your birthday. Because long ago when your mommy was just 18 years old and she just started talking to Jesus, she prayed to Jesus one night. She even wrote the prayer down that she'd have four children by her 34th birthday and Coleman, When you were born, there were two birthday cakes. Everybody wore party hats because, Coleman, you are God's answer to mommy's prayer. One day, if Coleman loses his job and his wife leaves him saying, you ain't nobody, nothing, the address of the hospital won't help him very much. But the story, two birthday cakes, everyone wore party hats. I was the answer to mommy's prayer. That could save his life. Stories tell us who we are. Stories tell us who another person is. Stories reveal people. Last week, I told you how I devoured Susan's love letters when I was at college. An objective observer might say, wow, they really must have contained some important information. Not really. Love letters usually don't contain important information. They're very different than textbooks and owner's manuals and dictionaries and cookbooks. Normally, love letters just contain a whole lot of drivel and silly stories, seemingly meaningless stories. What she wore that day, where she went with her roommate, what she had for dinner, and I just devoured them all. I'll quote one of those love letters that I showed you last week. and put it on the screen so you know I'm not lying. This is how it reads. It seems so hard to believe that just a few days ago I was in your arms kissing you, and now I am over 300 miles away. I love you so much. My dreams are all about you. 
I wore the same shirt I wore Friday night today so I could smell like you. Wow, right guard. <laughs> I love the smell. It makes me think that you are close by. I love you more than ever. You see that Susan Coleman wore the same shirt on Monday that she did on Friday. That fact is objectively meaningless. It wasn't even recorded in her files at Fort Lewis College, but that little fact, that story, was absolutely critical to me. Why? Because it revealed a person. And I had a hunch that our persons might merge one day. Stories reveal persons, and her story might become my story. Two might become one, a communion of, of persons. If someone at CU said to me, Peter, tell me who this Susan is. Well, I wouldn't give them her student ID number and, and her, her address and phone, phone number. I, I'd say something like, well, you know, she wore the same shirt on Monday that she had worn on Friday. I'd tell stories. Hey, Luke, who's God? And Luke answers. Behold, shepherds were out keeping watch over their flock by night, and suddenly the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. If someone asks you, who's God? What do you say? A, he is uncreated creator, a triune in nature, three persons being of one substance, or B, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of the sons said to his father, give me the share of the inheritance that falls to me. And he went away into this far country and he squandered his, his inheritance, his father's money on loose living and prostitutes. He came back with a plan to con his dad for more money. His father sees him in the distance. He runs to him before the son can say anything. He grabs him and covers him with kisses. And then he cries to the servants, kill the fatted calf because we're going to have a party. God is like that. Both A and B are correct, I would suppose. But which is the word of truth? The first is the word of man, but the story is the word of God. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus said, have you been with me so long and yet you don't know me? See my hands, see my feet, see my scars. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Seen what? a man touching lepers, holding children, giving sight to the blind, good news to the poor, telling stories. He is a story. Look at his hands. Look at his feet. Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth isn't a formula, law, or concept. It's a person. Who is he? Well, read his story. He is the story. His name means God is salvation, and that's the story. The story of salvation. Last week we preached on how the word of God is the gospel of your salvation. 1 Peter 1.25 says, this word, uh, the word of the Lord, the word of God is the gospel, the good news which was preached to you. God is love. Jesus is the living incarnate word of love. All of scripture is about Jesus. Scripture is a love letter, but more accurately, it's a stack of love letters. Love letters are full of stories. And even more, a stack of love letters tied together with a ribbon 
tells a story like, like this, like the story revealed in these letters that Susan wrote to me. All of Susan's love letters in a stack tied with a... If you were to read that stack of letters chronologically from start to finish, it would uh, comprise a story. A story would emerge. The story of Susan's love for me, how she revealed her heart to me, and captured my heart. The Bible is a stack of letters. How God reveals his heart to us and captures our heart. It's easy for me to get all sentimental about these letters now. Because <laughs> I know the plot. But it was really hard to live these letters then. Some letters are happy. Some are despairing. Some letters are angry. Some are demanding. The Bible is a stack of letters. Some are happy. Some are wrathful. Some are profoundly sad. Some even erotic. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat the choicest of its fruits. Song of Solomon 4.6. Told my wife that should be her like memory verse, but she didn't, didn't think so. Some letters are poetic. Then all the trees of the field will sing for joy. Some are demanding, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Some are historical. Uh, then he cried, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And they placed him in the tomb, and the tomb was open. Some are prophetic, and I saw the new Jerusalem coming down adorned as a bride for her bridegroom. Each letter written at a different time, in a different place, by a different person in different situation and culture speaking different a different language a zillion facts and yet one plot one story the story of the father redeeming his lost children the story of the bridegroom romancing his wayward bride the story of the spirit coming to fill his temple of flesh. It's the story of God creating us, saving us, always loving us. This is a gross over, oversimplification, but in the Old Testament, our covenant, we read the story of our failure. The law reveals our failure. In the New Testament, our covenant, we read the story of God's success. God comes in Jesus, bears our failure, and gives us his success. Jesus Christ crucified, risen from the dead, is the new covenant, also called the eternal covenant. Eternal means it was the plan all along. The Bible is his story, the story of God's love for us, the story of God revealing himself to us, romancing us, creating us in his own image. It's the revelation of Jesus, Yahashua, which means God is salvation. That's the meaning of the story. The Old Testament is 34 books of history, poetry, songs, prophecy. New Testament, 27 books. Uh, the four Gospels, which tell the story of Jesus. The book of Acts, which stories tell, tells the story of the early church. The epistles, which are letters. And the Revelation, which is a vision. The Bible definitely includes rules and commandments and laws, but they're contained all within a story, the story of God's Word, Jesus. The Bible is his story, his story, but get this, the Bible is also history. His story is 
history, that's because Jesus is the meaning of all things. He's the logos, the plot, the word through which the Father speaks all of space and time into existence. So the Bible is not only the greatest story ever told, in a very real sense, the Bible is also the only story ever told. All stories are a shadow of this story, the gospel story, and in fact, a part of this story. J.R.R. Tolkien said this, J.R.R. Tolkien, I always forget the second R. He said, you cannot keep the gospel out of stories. You cannot keep the good news. Even tragedy is a longing for good news. That's why the story works. Madeline Leingle wrote this. It's one of the greatest triumphs of Lucifer that he has managed to make Christians. Christians, she exclaimed, believe that a story is a lie. Modern secular man believes a story is a lie. So ultimately, there is no story unless we write it. But even more profoundly, uh, sadly, modern American Christians seem to also believe the very same thing. We've stopped believing in the story that reveals the person who saves. Instead, what do we believe in? Values, virtues, principles, programs, psychologies, sociologies, ideologies. That is knowledge of good and evil. The law. So we come to church and we read the Bible to get application points, things that we can do to make our life work, knowledge to make ourselves in the image of God, knowledge that we can use to write our own story. We come to church to write our own story rather than to hear the story. And then for us, Scripture is no longer the great story. It's become the great cookbook for whatever soup we happen to be making. And yet, whatever soup we do make is death. It's nobody, nothing. And all that's really nothing new. Throughout history, religious people have cut up the story to use the pieces in order to write their own story. We've ignored Scripture in order to use Scripture to really justify just about every manner of evil. Gossip, slander, murder, genocide, rape, apartheid, slavery, crusades, inquisitions. We cut up the story of love to justify our lack of love. Just as the Pharisees cut up the Savior in order to make themselves the Savior. We cut up the story of grace because we obviously cannot write that story. We can't write that story. We cut up the story and turn it into works because we want to glorify our ourselves. I think that was the sin in the garden at the tree of knowledge. I think that was also the sin in the garden on Mount Calvary at the foot of the cross. We cut up the story because we don't trust the plot. We cut up the story to write our own story with the pieces. We did it with the living word and we do it with the written word. Well, the Bible is not a cookbook for whatever soup you happen to be making. It's the story of God making soup. And check this out. You're an ingredient. 
in his soup. A lawyer asked Jesus, what must I do? I mean, what we must do is all about what the law, what, what we can do. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, the lawyer is making himself some salvation soup. And do you remember how Jesus answers him? He tells him a story. There was a man going down from Jerusalem to, to Jericho. Fell among robbers. He, he was lost. And a Samaritan bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and, and said, Jesus told the lawyer the story. That is, you can't make salvation soup. You're lost. But God is making soup through me. Listen to the story, and lo and behold, you're an ingredient, and you've been found. Matthew writes, Jesus spoke nothing to the crowd without a parable, without a story. The crowd had to surrender to the story in order to get the meaning. The meaning is a person. Stories store persons. So read your Bible as a story. When you read a story, you read with a sense of context and culture, language, genre, flow, and a particularly plot. A story uses all of those things to suck you in. When you read a good story, you picture the story, you imagine the story, you enter into the story. Moreover, the dogs licked Lazarus' sores. I think you're supposed to picture that. You're supposed to imagine that. When they threw the harlot at Jesus' feet, what does that scripture smell like? What does that look like? What does it feel like? Dust, heat, sweat, whimpers, screams, re religious folks holding stones over a, a prostitute half naked and bleeding in the dust. What does that feel like? And then, what does it feel like when the man Jesus looks down and says, neither do I condemn you? See, that does more than the theological concept of propitiation. You don't just learn information, you experience persons. You don't just comprehend the story, the story comprehends you. When you read a good story, you, you don't think, how can I apply this? How can I use this? How can I apply this to myself? Actually, when you read a good story, you forget yourself. You lose yourself in the story, and then you find the story in you. After watching James Bond movies, I drive fast. Nobody tells me to do it. In fact, my wife tells me not to do it, but I do it anyway. I just, I just do it. When you get caught up in a story, you ingest the plot, and it changes you like this. See that? Nobody told these people to do this. They just got caught up in the story of the Broncos, began to love the Broncos, then they began to worship the Broncos, then they began to look like the Broncos. Even converted from other cultures to the Broncos. Even converted from the dark side to the orange side. Hallelujah, hallelujah. So you get caught up in the story of Jesus, and you'll begin to love Jesus, you'll begin to worship Jesus, and you'll begin to look like Jesus. When I lose myself in the story, I find the story in me.
And then lo and behold, I find myself in the story. I lose myself and find myself in, in the story. I don't have to think about it. I just do it. I lose myself in James Bond and I drive fast like James Bond. And I suspect deep down inside somewhere I think, I, well, I kind of am James Bond. Well, you lose yourself in a story when you have faith in the plot. When you have faith that the plot is good. Every story has a plot. Every event in a story takes on meaning because of the plot. If something doesn't have meaning to the plot, the author will not include it in the story. So in the good story, every event is transformed by faith in the author and his plot. That's why you pay attention to every seemingly boring detail in a story. And she set her coffee cup on the edge of the table. You pay attention because that's going to mean something later on. He put it in the story. And that's why you don't panic at every terrifying turn in a story. James Bond's hanging by his fingernail from the edge of a cliff. Helicopters are launching grenades at him. No one stands up in the theater and screams, My God, James Bond is going to die! No, nobody panics. Nobody's terrified. No one cowers in fear. Instead, what happens? We all lean forward because we have faith in the plot. And we want to see the glory of 007 revealed. In a Bond movie, the protagonist is the plot. James Bond is the plot. So in a Bond movie, all things work together for the glory of James Bond. In the Bible, all things work together for the glory of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, imagine what it would mean if your life was a good story being told by a good author. So not simply that you were reading a good story, but you were the good story and you knew it. Imagine if you were James Bond or Jesus and you knew it. You'd encounter all sorts of obstacles. You'd encounter loss and pain, but you wouldn't surrender to faithlessness and fear. The bombs might go off, the storms might rage, but you wouldn't panic. In fact, you might even fall asleep in the midst of the, of the, of the storm. You would have faith in the author, and so you would live the plot. Not, not only would it turn out for good in the end, but every experience would be transformed by the plot. They might launch grenades at you. Your friends might betray you. They might, you might experience incredible pain, but, but you'd lean into the story, knowing that this is what makes a story good, and this is what makes you good, knowing that it's all working together for your glory. Imagine if the story was all about you. But is it all about you? Are you Jesus? Are you the plot? Does everything work for your glory? No. No, no, no. You are not the protagonist. In fact, maybe you are the antagonist that crucifies the protagonist. It's not to your glory. 
it's not all about you. Unless the author has made the protagonist all about you. It's not all about you unless it's a love story and you are the beloved. Well, then it is all about you, not as the subject, but as the object of affection. Then it's all about you by grace, and you are glorified by grace through faith. You don't glorify yourself, but oh yeah, you are glorified. In a love story, the beloved is the antagonist who is conquered by the protagonist and is made in the image of that protagonist. In other words, the one that doesn't love is conquered by love, and then begins to love. That's a love story. In our love stories, both parties are often antagonists. They, they don't really love each other very much, and love itself is the protagonist. In the gospel, love itself, love himself, takes on flesh and becomes a protagonist while all of humanity is the antagonist. So much so that we nail him to a tree in a garden. We crucify him, and yet that act of grace creates faith in us and transforms all the antagonists into the image of the protagonist. John 12, Palm Sunday, Jesus says, when I, am was, am, when I am lifted up, and he was speaking about Liam being lifted up on the cross, he said, when I am lifted up, I will helkuo, I will romance all people unto myself. At the cross, the protagonist conquers all antagonists and draws the beloved to himself. All people are the beloved. Humanity is the beloved. He is the groom, and we are the bride. In the Revelation, John sees the bride of Christ descending to earth from heaven, and she has. Remember what she has? She has the glory of God. The Bible makes it incredibly clear. God shares his glory with no other. That means the bride must not be an other. The bride is the very body of her groom and the temple of the living God. She has received glory by grace through faith. She has surrendered to the author's plot and become his body, radiating his glory. And so read the story that way. We read the story to lose ourselves in the story and find the story in us and even find ourselves in the story. We even become the story by grace through faith. We become the bride of Jesus and even more, the body of Jesus. So it is all about you. Your suspicions were correct, just kind of in the wrong way. It is all about you. It is all about you, and it is all to your glory, for you actually are the body of Christ, but only by grace, through faith. And so you can't be proud, but you must be grateful. You didn't write your story. You can't write your story. But you will live your story by grace, through faith. You say, well, okay, but, 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 but what if I reject the story? What if we don't have faith in the author or in his plot? What if we insist on writing our own story? Well, then you're lost. In fact, you are utterly lost. 
when we write our own story, we're an antagonist to the protagonist who creates and sustains all things. We reject the word of the author of all things and have chosen then no thing. We've written ourselves into nowhere and nothing, and some call that place hell. But is the author still writing the story? Yes! Because you are not stronger than the author who creates you, who is love. In a love story, the protagonist conquers the antagonist. Good conquers evil by turning evil into good. That's the story, the love story, the gospel. So hell cannot be the end. Why? Because Jesus is the end. It says it over and over again. Jesus is the end. Jesus is the beginning and the end. He's the word of love. He's the plot. When you believe the story, you begin to proclaim the story, and God will use you to write the story on another's heart. Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church, my bride. Well, that's quite a story. The Bible contains many plot summaries, and these plot summaries contain all the space and time testifying to the beginning and the end, the entire stack of love letters. Here are just a few. This is Colossians 1, 18 through 20. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, that's a plot summary. That's the summary of his story and the summary of history, the summary of all space and time beginning to end. Ephesians 1.9, for he has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite anacephalat, bring together under one head all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Romans 5, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Then in chapter 8, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Chapter 11, for God has consigned all men to disobedience, they may have mercy upon all. 1 Corinthians 15, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Revelation 21, and he who sat upon the throne said, look, I make all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The beginning and the end, that's the plot. That's the word, that's Jesus. And did you notice he didn't say, he didn't say an end, he said the end. It's not as if there are two ends. No, there's one end, one story, one plot. So if you come to an end that's not Jesus, what does that mean? You're not at the end! Hallelujah! That's not the end. Jesus is the end. And isn't that what makes a story great? You think it's the end. I don't know how many saw this recently, and I don't want to wreck the movie for you, but Superman dies. <laughs> and then the last frame of the movie, you hear a heartbeat. Boom, boom. <laughs> it's not the end. Jesus cries out from the cross, delivers up his spirit. You think it's the end. But then you see him standing on a throne. Death is not the end. Jesus is the living end. People weep and gnash their teeth in outer darkness. That's true. Some are cast into the lake of fire, it seems. But it's not the end if 
it's not Jesus, or maybe Jesus is the fire, but Jesus is the end, and Jesus is the plot. Have faith in the author and his plot. That's what I'm saying. I'm sorry I say it with passion, (laughs) because I have discovered that many people are incredibly agitated by the plot summaries in Scripture. Many people who call themselves Christians And I think there could be really a whole lot of reasons for this, but I think probably it's all just one, and that is we don't have faith in the author or his plot. So what do we do? We seize control of the plot, and we try to write the story. That would be like reading through most of my wife's letters and then getting to the last three or four, panicking, and throwing those letters in the trash and writing them myself. We seize control of our own story, and we seize control of other people's stories. And so we don't proclaim the gospel. That is, God is salvation. What do we do? We threaten with the gospel. We say God is salvation if you choose to make him salvation. If you make yourself the author of the plot, the Lord of the plot. You see what that means? It means we stop telling the story. And we start telling the anti-story. We say, you better take this knowledge of the good and write a good story. But if you write the story, then you are salvation. And you just crucified God as salvation. The plot. So why do we hate the verses that say God is love and love wins and that's the story? I think it's because we all want to write our own story. We all want to glorify ourselves. And what happens? We only desecrate ourselves. We want our will to trump God's will. But his will is reality. And so what do we do? When we write our own story, we write ourselves out of reality and into nowhere nothing. It's like we drop a bomb on our own house and find ourselves utterly lost. We've all been lost. Some will be lost even after their bodies die. But that's not the end of the story. The plot came to seek and to save the lost, and that's the story, the gospel. Well, now today I'm preaching this to make a particular point. I think we have stopped reading our Bibles because we have lost faith in the plot. So we read that Sodom was destroyed by the eternal consuming fire who is God, and so we stop reading. Before we get to Ezekiel 16 and find out that Sodom will be restored and Jerusalem will be jealous of her beauty, the beauty of grace. We read that the earth opened up and swallowed up the unfaithful Israelites alive down into Sheol and we stop reading. We stop reading before we get to Ezekiel 37 and hear the word of God say, prophesy to the dry bones, son of man, for I will raise them from their graves, all of them. This is the whole house of Israel and I will lead them into the promised land. We, we stop reading. Uh, we, we, we read that the Israelites,